Hey, what up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, centered from Reality Podcast. It is Thursday, December 14th. I'm sitting here watching the Raiders just smoke the Chargers. And I'm talking about just smoke the Chargers. And it's 42-0 to zero at half. It's the Raiders' highest scoring half of all time. And this is after the Raiders won, or no, sorry, lost to the Vikings 3-0 last week. And now they have 42 points in the first half. I love it. And I was telling one of my bosses earlier today, I was like, it's got. It's probably going to be a baseball score again. Chargers, Raiders, they're horrible. Well, the Chargers are horrible, but this is quite a shit show to watch, and I am totally, totally here for it. Anyways, I just finished reading a really good piece because I'm so bored of this game because there is <laughs> not much to talk about with it. And it kind of looks at how... It's basically looking at how American media has progressed since the founding to now, how it went from kind of being a narrow cast media written for elites with limited franchise, and now it's kind of gone to broadcast media and universal suffrage at the same time. And basically this article is arguing that the right-wing echo chamber has gotten bad, but mainstream media like the New York Times is also biased and has definitely shifted further to the left. And so it's made a lot of independents and conservatives lose trust in it. So they go to other outlets. And maybe some people end up going down a rabbit rabbit hole or getting red-pilled and end up watching Tucker Carlson on X. And basically, it's arguing that we are going to find out in 2024 if you can have a healthy election and a healthy democracy, if you have media echo echo chambers, sorry, and you also have the mix of narrowcast media and universal media, broadcast media all happening at once. It's like everything everywhere all at once, basically. Good piece. I might talk about it more tomorrow. But anyways, I, I wanted to I want to talk about that just horrific Texas abortion chaos. And just how malicious it is and how draconian it is. And Ken Paxton is involved and he is just a horrible human being. And I also want to talk about a looming stalemate. Obviously, Zelensky is going back to Ukraine without more funds from the United States. I also want to talk about how it seems like a lot of Republicans are okay with not solving the border crisis and the Ukrainian crisis because they don't really, they kind of want an excuse to pull out of Ukraine, basically. And I I do think that is happening here. And it is very troubling as we have the Heritage Foundation meeting with Viktor Orban, who is pro-Putin, anti-Ukraine. Very troubling stuff. So we'll get into that. I also want to, well, if we have time, we'll talk about J.D. Vance. But first, I I think I need you guys' help. So we are on, what's today, Thursday? We are on day four of me having Olivia Rodrigo's song, Pretty Isn't Pretty stuck in my head. I have listened to podcasts. I've listened to my own music. I've listened to trap rap. I've listened to my Spotify unwrapped from 2018. And still every morning I wake up and it's pretty, isn't pretty enough, whatever. Every morning it's stuck in my head. And now because I just did that, it's stuck in my head again. But anyways, if you have any advice on how to get a song out of your head, please let me know because I'm not even like a hardcore fan of hers by any means. But it's in my head, it's not leaving, and it's just in there rent-free driving me crazy. So anyways, let's start with Guyana. I talked about last week how Venezuela held that, I would say dodgy at best, referendum. And in this referendum, 95% of respondents agreed to annex two-thirds of Guyana. 
what happened is oil discovery occurred in Guyana recently. And off the coast of Guyana, they found some pretty insane oil reserves. And it's kind of made Guyana a power player in the region and kind of a pretty oil-dense nation. We have to remember that the Venezuelan economy is horrible, mainly thanks to the politics of Viktor Orban and things like the resource curse, curse, sorry, which I would definitely say is part of this as well. But basically, Nicolas Maduro knows elections are coming up, which he's going to definitely doctor. But then at the same time, Nicolas Maduro is basically going, maybe if we just annex the part of Guyana that has oil, we take the oil, it's good for the economy, and then I have a reason to take the election. Even though, like I said, it's really not an election. I mean, he sees their election board, the courts, his political party has a majority. I mean, give me a break. But anyways, why I start with this in a sense is because this to me is why the United States needs to remember that Putin cannot succeed in Ukraine. And he can't move on to Moldova. And he cannot annex Belarus by 2030, as we've seen leaked Kremlin documents have said. Because what this is doing is it's giving a pass to every POS autocratic leader in the world to say, hey, if Putin can take Ukraine, then I can take Guyana's oil. I can annex Guyana. It makes China go, hmm, well, the U.S. Uh, Congress failed to pass more funds to help a democracy. So maybe, maybe Taiwan's up for grabs. It makes Russia then go, well, we succeeded here. Transnistria, it, it was formerly a Russian-speaking part of Moldova. Why not? Come on. And it, it's a troubling trend. And I don't know if you would see Maduro considering this, knowing there's an international order, if it wasn't for what we're seeing in Ukraine right now. And I was going to start with abortion in Texas, but why don't we actually start with 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 Ukraine, because I, I guess this all kind of fits into it pretty well. So right now, Republicans in the House and Senate are basically resisting Biden's newest request. One guy who's resisting it is J.D. Vance, who, by the way, I've listened to some interesting analysis from the bulwark, Sarah Longwell of the bulwark, really good kind of neoconservative pollster, and she talks about how it seems like J.D. Vance is probably the successor to Trump, or he's probably the future of the GOP. He's cynical. He wants to be famous. He's in a place where he thinks he's fighting for the little guy, but his views have completely changed. But he also is kind of making this moral argument that, you know, the Republicans cannot work with Democrats and the Democrats are an existential threat to the Republic and that maybe democracy isn't necessary to have power. Like this is a guy who his his road from hillbilly elegy to now is very fascinating, but he seems like he's cynical enough and dangerous enough and doesn't have enough of a moral compass that he is the probably the future of the Republican Party. And I've even seen some people say Trump Vance 2024. That would be fascinating to me. Because Trump does like these people that criticized him at one time that now bend the knee to him and come back whining to him. And J.D. Vance is a perfect example of that. So anyways, the reason why I bring up J.D. Vance is that <laughs> he walked out early 
during um, the Senate meeting with Vladimir Zelensky on, I think it was Wednesday, no, Tuesday morning. And he basically is talking about how we can't send anything to Ukraine. He is he has been very against giving Ukraine any help. He has talked about Democrats helping poison the border. He talks about Democrats wanting to bring fentanyl in. He is very focused on kind of this dangerous America first populism. And the problem here is that he's one of these people who is just playing dumb. As I've said time and time again, I'm sorry if you've heard it, you can walk and chew gum at the same time. You can give Ukraine funding and also do the border. So that gets us to this current moment where the Biden administration has sent Congress a request for $61 billion in new money for Ukraine, $14 billion to help Israel against Hamas and Hezbollah, a little more controversial. It also talks about humanitarian assistance to help refugees and others displaced in Ukraine and in Gaza. And it also looks at $14 billion for border security and, and also assistance to Indo-Pacific allies. In a perfect world, and I have said this for a long time, there are issues at the southern border. Our asylum process is completely, completely broken. The reason for our border crisis is that migrants, immigrants, know how to game the asylum system, so they're coming over here. And I actually supported Trump's remain in Mexico policy, one of the only things I ever supported of his, because I do think if you have a lot of migrants coming from, say, El Salvador, just to name one, if they're going through Mexico first to get here, it should be states like Mexico, big countries like Mexico, that get involved in this, and maybe they help with the process so you don't have people knowing the American asylum system is broken, coming here, setting up a court date, and disappearing. So our system is broken. Again, this is a bipartisan issue. We have had no changes to the entire process, really, or I guess meaningful changes since the Reagan era, when when they did a lot of amnesty programs and worker visas, which is one of the reasons why I think Reagan sometimes gets a bad rap, is because I do agree with some of these policies that he did. Anyways, I could rant all about that, but there's, both parties are guilty of where we're at right now. And so you would think, if you really want to walk and chew gum at the same time, you would go, okay, Biden, Biden wants money for Ukraine. Republicans want money for the border. Let's do it. But it seems to me that right now the Republicans are okay with granting Biden a loss. What I mean here is that a lot of House Republicans just don't care about enacting law. They don't care about solving problems. And David Frum has a really good piece in The Atlantic that I think it came out two days ago, if I recall. And he writes here in quotes, The premise of much of the reporting about the negotiation is that Republicans sincerely care about the border and are using Ukraine and Israel as leverage in order to get their way on the higher priority. But then Frum writes, and I think this is a very astute point that totally makes sense, and it's something that I've kind of been arguing for a while. He writes here, but for some Republicans, at least, stopping aid to Ukraine seems a priority itself. A few actively subscribe to the pro-Putin politics of the far right. Others, including Speaker Johnson himself, started as supporters of Ukraine, but have bent their view under the influence of anti-Ukraine party spirit. And I think, <clears throat> excuse me, I think this is actually a really interesting point, is that 
I don't think some of these Republicans, these MAGA Republicans, these J.D. Vance type of Republicans, I don't think they care about the border. They know their base cares about the border. But they also are linking Ukrainian aid to the border and then putting out radical border reform bills so that they can rationalize pulling out of Ukraine when Democrats do not want to work with them on drastic border policy changes. It is a nice off-ramp if you're trying to rationalize not giving Ukraine any more help. And that is the crux of David Frum's article here, which I think is a really good point. And of course, to be fair, there are a lot of Republicans that support both. Frum talks about how the Senate, obviously, a lot of Senate Republicans want to help Ukraine. I would argue still probably half of House Republicans do too. But then again, I look at it, Lindsey Graham, who's literally like a war hawk of war hawks, He's even talking about no longer funding the border. I mean, not the border, sorry, Freudian slip, no longer funding Ukraine. So we are seeing a shift here. And I, I do think that there's a very interesting argument to be made that a lot of Republicans don't really care if Biden is able to negotiate this or not. And we also have to remember that H.R. 2 is this House bill. And Mike Johnson has insisted to Biden, he put this out in a letter on December 5th, he insisted that they will go for nothing less than transformative on the border. They will not agree to work with Democrats unless transformative policies happen on the border. And HR2 is transformative. It wants to completely dismantle and then rewrite the asylum system from the top to the bottom. And it passed in the House in May. Pretty, pretty not great margins, 219 to 213. No Democrats voted for it and two Republicans voted against it. So the argument here is that this is an unpopular bill that was just a virtue signal, basically, and it would be dead on arrival in the Senate. So Republicans know this. So they're virtue, they're virtue signaling to their base to say, see, we want to solve the border. Democrats just want to fund foreign countries and Biden can't do this. So then it's kind of a I guess you could say a propaganda victory for the Fox News MAGA types that go, see, Democrats don't want to negotiate this, but it also gives the more smart ones that understand what they're doing here a nice, easy way to say, see, well, we can't fund Ukraine because Democrats don't want to fund the border. It's, it's pretty malicious. It's also just pretty dark and, and pretty Machiavellian, I guess, would be another word you could use here. And this all comes at the same time that um, the, the Guardian has a pretty interesting piece. It's about five days old now, but I wanted to touch on it for a minute. Basically, it talks about how members of the Heritage Foundation think tank, part of the Plan 2025 government replace, replacement legal coup that Trump wants to do if he's back in power, the group spearheading this complete replacement of the government bureaucracy. It is meeting, or it met, excuse me, with members of Viktor Orban's far-right government from Hungary. And the Guardian writes here in quotes, Allies of Hungary's far-right Prime Minister Viktor Orban will hold a closed-door meeting with Republicans in Washington to push for an end to U.S. military support for Ukraine. The article writes later, Members of the Hungarian Institute of International Affairs and staff from the Hungarian embassy in Washington will on Monday begin a two-day event hosted by the Conservative Heritage Foundation think tank. The first day includes panel speeches about the Ukrainian war, as well as topics such as transatlantic culture wars. And 
Later in the article, it says here, a diplomatic source close to the Hungarian embassy said here in quotes, Orban is confident that the Ukrainian aid will not pass in Congress. Then the article later talks about how he was on a trip then to get to the EU to block assistance from the EU as well. I don't need to remind you guys because I've talked about Viktor Orban at nauseum on this podcast, but this is a guy who is kind of writing the playbook of what Republicans, or at least the America First MAGA Republicans, of what they want to do. You hold free and fair elections, but you basically discredit the other side, buy up media institutions that discredit trust in institutions. You find a demon, someone like George Soros. You attack institutions like education, higher education, call it woke, say that it's indoctrinating your kids. You bring back a strong religious Christian nationalism. You also demonize immigrants and talk about building fences and walls. Then you basically erode judicial independence, stack the courts, and hold elections that basically the other parties cannot win because Congress is stacked, the courts are handpicked by Viktor Orban, and you own the media institutions, or at least fund them highly, so you can put out biased attacks against the other parties. This is a liberal democracy, and Viktor Orban is the architect of this. He, in my opinion, is a much more effective autocrat than Putin because there are democratic countries that still honor him and think his model works. That is why he has become kind of the poster child of this anti-woke, traditionalist, national conservative right. And you have Republicans blocking aid to Ukraine and also meeting with Viktor Orban, who is a Putin ally. I think that's scary. I really do think that's scary. And like the Heritage Foundation has its hands in a lot right now. And so to think that Republicans want to work in good faith with Joe Biden to actually fix the border and give money to Ukraine is ludicrous. Also, I should just add that like Republicans like the border as an issue. Fox News likes to talk about the border. The issue comes up every couple of years. I'm not discrediting there being a border crisis. I think there is an asylum crisis. There is an immigration crisis. But Republicans don't want that to be fixed because it's good for them. It's good for their narrative. It's good for their anti-democratic messaging. And again, we all know what Trump wants to do if he's reelected. Mass deportations, camps at the border. He's even said it. It's not me just hyping it up. He said it. Now, I guess some good news. I was just reading The Economist again before I started recording. It writes here, though, in a surprise move, the EU agreed to open membership negotiations with Ukraine. Viktor Orban, Hungary's prime minister, has threatened to veto the decision. But reportedly, he left the room when it's put to a vote among the 27 heads of government. Vladimir Zelensky, Ukraine's president, hailed the decision as a victory for Ukraine. The EU also agreed to open a session talks with Moldova and to grant candidate status to Georgia. Now, I am against Ukraine joining NATO right now because I think it would escalate a lot of things. And also it would require countries like the United States, Britain, France, Germany, etc. to get openly involved in a conflict, send troops there because of Article 5. Stating, obviously, that NATO members have to defend other NATO members if they're attacked. But I do think a good start would be Ukraine joining the European Union because corruption and illiberal activity has always been a concern in, 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 in Ukraine. 
And so if it joins the EU, there is more scrutiny. It receives funds if it does good things. And there is monitoring and accountability. And I think that would be very good for Ukraine. So, you know, I, I, hope, I hope there's better news out of Ukraine. Because right now I hear words like stalemate, worst strikes on Kiev since the beginning. Then you see our Congress can't even get more aid to them. Zelensky seems desperate. Really bad news all around. And I've read reports about how there could be catastrophic consequences in Ukraine. Ukrainian units running out of ammunition already. Basically, if they stop getting some of the missiles and anti-air technology that they need, winter is coming, which means they could be left unaided for quite some time. And that probably means using less technology, less advanced weapons, resorting to 60s and 70s weapons, and sending more people into the fields to fight. So more death. It could be very bad. So I hope the Republicans get their shit together. I, I don't, I'm not going to hold my breath, I guess is what I would say. But I, I, like, like if you're Biden right now, I think you're just really stuck between a rock and a hard place. Anyways, I was going to start with abortion, but I, I felt like after talking about Guyana, it was better to just get into that. So abortion, this is one of the more irritating ones. Last of the night here, but certainly not least, I think just as important as what I talked about here, if not more, there's a woman named Kate Cox, 31, so a few years older than me. She lives in Dallas, Texas, married, two kids, young kids, and about, you know, 20 weeks into her third pregnancy, she learned that her fetus has something called trisomy 18. I am not particularly familiar with what it is specifically, but basically it's a genetic condition that would give the fetus slim to no chance of survival within a year. She's also suffered cramping and other symptoms, and she would have to go into the emergency room multiple times over the last few weeks, and, is, and she's been miserable, already has two kids, and she basically worried that if she, had, if she was forced to have this child, she would never be able to have other children, probably. It would, it would ruin that potential. And it would also likely, likely this, this newborn would die within a year. Very slim chance of survival. And Miss Fox has talked about how she wants to have more kids. It's not like she's anti-having kids. She just sees herself at risk. And is it worth putting yourself at risk if you're carrying a baby that probably has no chance of surviving? So as, as I'm sure most of you are aware, after the overturning of Roe with the Dobbs decision, they went further than that. Texas has pretty much criminalized abortion, um, holding abortion doctors with felonies, telling citizens to call on abortion doctors, turn them in. It's a pretty vigilante state in terms of this, incentivizing citizens to turn in abortion doctors, etc. So anyways, Kate Fox believed she was a good candidate for some of the narrow exceptions to allow abortions to happen in Texas. One of them says abortion is allowed when the mother's life is threatened, or in quotes, when a pregnancy poses a serious risk of substantial impairment of a major bodily function. Her lawyers and doctors then argued that her future, her future fertility was at risk. And I'm no abortion doctor or expert, but I think that sounds pretty reasonable. She had two kids. She was already suffering cramps and other symptoms. 
The baby had no chance of survival. It was posing it like risks to her future of having kids. And I would argue that if you actually care about life, <laughs> maybe you would think that like this is good for both parties here. So basically, she went in front of a district court. I think it was in tech, not in Texas, in in the Dallas area, and they granted the request and said she could get an abortion. But the piece of shit, Ken Paxton, who <laughs> who was being investigated for numerous felonies, indicted on many of them, and then was acquitted. He immediately appealed to the Texas Supreme Court. He also sent a warning letter, which was shared on social media, to the three hospitals where Cox was looking to have the procedure done. And he said they would face penalties despite the court's permission. And then the Texas Supreme Court put a temporary hold on the lower district court's ruling. So basically they said you, she's not allowed to have an abortion anymore. And what is in kind of insane to me here is, I, this is the word of the day, I guess, but the maliciousness of this, but also the idea that a guy like Ken Paxton, who is, to me, at least an alleged criminal, seems like he's been clearly involved in illegal activities, a really troubling guy, he can basically just decide what happens and pressure the Supreme Court to do it. He wakes up and says, nope, this woman is not allowed to get an abortion, even though the lower courts have said, yes, she can. And and I guess what is kind of troubling to me is that there is a guy like Ken Paxton, who is an embattled attorney general of Texas, gets acquitted after literally indictments on indictments, ranging from fraud to election interference. He now has control over women's rights, and especially a woman who is probably going to lose the fetus no matter what, and it could actually ruin her ability to have kids in the future. One guy who is a hardline partisan hack can decide women's rights. And again, like, like I said, Cox wants to have another kid. This case is about the viability of her fetus and putting her life at risk. It's such a complex issue that should be put between her and her doctor. And, and you know, to go further into this, Paxton is all over the place. NPR writes here in quotes, In court and in legal filings, Paxton's office has repeatedly argued that women with life-threatening pregnancies who did not get appropriate care in Texas can and should sue their doctors. At the same time, though, the article continues, all of Texas's abortion law targets doctors who perform abortions with penalties. Doctors face life in prison, fines of $100,000, and loss of their medical license. So basically, you have radical partisan hacks running the state, holding doctors accountable. And I couldn't imagine what it would be like to be a doctor in this situation, let alone a woman in this situation, because... Doctors, a lot of doctors, especially when you're, when you're in this field of medicine, you go in because you want to help women. And now one of the main jobs you do, you could face life in prison for. It is just a disastrous, draconian process that just is exactly why I don't think a lot of Republicans thought about post-Roe. As I've talked about on the podcast, I think Roe is flawed. 
Even Ruth Bader Ginsburg talked about how it was flawed and they needed to enshrine abortion into law, not just have these Supreme Court decisions do it. But anyways, that didn't happen. And when I say enshrine into law, I mean like a legislative decision like a lot of countries. But anyways, codify abortion is a better way to put it. But anyways, the thing here is that the Republicans are the dog that caught the car. You are seeing radicalism here that is just insane. And I guess looking forward, stories like Cox's in Texas and ones across the country that we keep seeing pop up again and again, they're going to remind voters just about how much troubling power some states now have to limit women's rights. It's bad. And you know, people just talk about how abortion, like abortion can be a winning issue for Democrats, which I do think could be the case. But it's also just the fact that now some of these states literally are authoritarian for it. And I, I just think the Republicans have an uphill battle here. And I think they should, because I can understand debating maybe a 15-week ban, 18, 20-week ban. A lot of countries have that. But to completely criminalize it, and tell citizens to narc on their doctors, threaten doctors with life in prison, make a woman have a baby that might die or even harm them. It is just very authoritarian and very just very just draconian and dark and malicious. And I, I do hope that the, the Republicans pay for this in elections because this is just not where the average American voter is. And then the funniest thing here... Well, well, I don't know if it's funny. It's something. Politico has an interesting article out yesterday that talks about how Kellyanne Conway, you know, one of Trump's main strategists, campaign manager as well, she is basically telling Republicans to transition, deflect, and pivot. Politico writes here, Kellyanne Conway is going to Capitol Hill on Wednesday with a message for Republicans. Promote contraception or risk defeat in 2024. The article continues, the former senior counselor and campaign manager for Donald Trump is part of a group set to brief Republicans on how they might get ahead of Democrats' attacks that the GOP is anti-woman by talking more about protecting contraception and less about banning abortion. (laughs) There's also this gal, Susan Hirschman. She is involved in this, and she, she is basically trying to argue that tough love is better, like... Republicans actually don't dislike women. It's just kind of a tough love. Look, <laughs> the irony here is that I don't know if you really want Republicans talking about contracept excuse me, contraceptives either. Like, yeah, there's the Nancy Maces and Nikki Haley's and the more moderates, mainly moderate women Republicans that are definitely fine with contraceptives. But I don't know if you want to get like a Mike Johnson, who's, by the way, the Speaker of the House, talking about contraceptives because he's against them. And I have a feeling if you got like Ted Cruz talking about it or Ron DeSantis, Vivek Ramaswamy, some of these guys might actually say, you know what, we actually don't really like contraceptives either. Like Kellyanne Conway should have been doing this message thing about a year ago because I have seen Republicans like Mike Johnson, like Ted Cruz, literally say they don't want contraceptives either. They want to ban it all. And so... I think it's a little bit too late to pivot because the party has gone very socially conservative, very Christian nationalism, and they kind of just want women to have the kids. They kind of want to just go back to that era. And I could throw out statistics all night about how contraceptives, IUDs, etc. have been 
very useful towards just preventing <laughs> birth-related illnesses, mortality rates, etc. But that won't change any of these people's minds. But contraceptives are good. Abortion is good in circumstances as well. But I think it's a little bit too late to turn this for a party that has gone very in the other direction. So I, I guess at the end of the day, the, the tragic thing here is that this party has gone so radical on issues like this and on Ukraine, just to name a few, on January 6th. And they still might beat Biden in 2024. So I think it's all hands on deck on just for so many levels. But I'm going to get out of here. It's Thursday night. Tomorrow's my only off day of the week, I think. So I'm going to watch a rom-com. This football game is shitty. So yeah, I'm going to watch a rom-com, get a little sleep, probably do one of my loops around somewhere, half marathons tomorrow. So anyways, have a great night. Enjoy your Thursday evening, and I'll see you guys soon. Adios. Thank you.